0: Block Talk Radio. Hello? Block Talk Radio. Hi. Coming to you since 1997
1: on KKUP Radio, with over 250 guests and still going strong in their 12th year of weekly broadcasting, the International Taz and Paula Show brings to you engaging, and groundbreaking intensity on radio and now on the Internet Airwaves Today. Internet Airwaves. Listen live every Thursday or visit Embracing Mother Earth's archives, exclusive articles, ask questions, and receive actual answers from guests anytime at TazAndPaulaShow.com. Taz and Paula's special guests are experts coming from all walks of life, Energizing our lives with a passion that inspires and teaches us with each of their compelling personal life journeys, with roots from ancient wisdom and bridging it with modern science. We hope today's show touches the wisdom of your heart. And now, Taz and Paula.
0: Woo-hoo. Well, a happy Halloween is bobbing just around the corner. So good afternoon to all of our listeners. Our guest today, William J. Hall, shares a true terrifying poltergeist story. What may be the most notorious and most terrifying poltergeist haunting of recent decades, the Bridgeport poltergeist was seen and heard by thousands of people on one unforgettable day in uh, 1974. And one of the local young uh, youngsters, William J. Hall, remembers viewing it on TV when he was 10 years old. William Hall grew up to become a magician and a well-known investigator of the paranormal and the unexplained, writing a syndicated column on those subjects for many years in Connecticut newspapers. And today, Paula, our journalist, William relays the details for this terrifying poltergeist story. You are now listening to the International Taz and Paula Show. I'm Taz.
2: And I'm Paula. Well, Taz, William has ushered in from his past never before reported interviews of the first responders and other witnesses and previously unrevealed documents and reports in his new book, The World's Most Haunted House The True Story of the Bridgeport Poltergeist on Lindley Street. This book exposes those gnarly feelings of the Lindley Street haunting brought to life from the inside out. And with an in-depth investigation encompassing policemen, firefighters, and others, exposing the ups and downs of things that go bumpity-bump in the night.
0: (laughs) Paula, in real life, this is not one of my most favorite things to do. I know you love Halloween, right? <laughs> yes. But for me, Halloween was a scary thing for me always. I'm not really sure where that came from. I just didn't like to go out and walk the streets in the dark for trick-or-treating ever. William Hall, we are honored to share you and your book with our listeners. Welcome. Well, we're going to call you
2: Bill, if that's Okay. <laughs> Um. Is, okay. Oh, I I have to uh, hold on. Let me keep that turned off. Hi, right, Bill. Welcome to our show.
3: Hi, I'm honored to be here. Thank you.
2: Now, when did you start? It sounds like it might have been when you were a kid. But when did you start um, being interested in the paranormal?
3: Oh yes, it was uh, very young. You know, I grew up on In Search of, and uh, that's incredible for for us older folks—not old folks, but older folks. <laughs> um, so yeah, I was int- You know, I started doing magic, uh, well, very poorly, but you know, at age seven. So I was uh, always fascinated uh, from the, from there on in with uh, anything like this, whether it was you know UFOs or haunted houses or any of that kind of thing, and. Um, Later on, of course, becoming uh, much more uh, skeptical about it. But I always had an open mind. You know, I always held uh, an open mind to it. And I did research it more, I think, than uh, most of us do, you know, as you guys do, because, you know, and and the listeners, because we're the people who are, you know, look deeper than just saying, I don't believe it. You know, uh, we tend to say, I don't know if it's true or not. Let me order that government document or let me try to research further and and uh to dig a little bit deeper before you know believing or dismissing something so but i've been interested in it for for many years and uh then in the 90s did a newspaper column where i would uh, uh do different um articles every month on uh, different things whether it's fortune telling the pyramids uh ufo's haunted houses things like that
0: when you were 10, Bill, and you were sitting before the TV and you saw this happening, what was your immediate thought?
3: Um, I thought it was really cool. <laughs> and I asked my dad, uh, you know, dad, you know, is this is this real and and of course he said no. <laughs> and you know, life went on, but that was, you know, that's my dad. Um Happy to say, he's a little bit more open now. I think uh, I think the evidence is finally getting to him. But uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but at that time he's like, oh no no, it's you know it's just a, a hoax, and that was it. And you know, as most people on the outside would have responded, except for those who are a little bit closer to the details or who took more of an interest, other than the regular uh, cursory in- interest that somebody watching the news would have uh, gotten out of it. But um, but yes, yeah, so I never really knew uh, much what to think of it. But I was always fascinated by it.
0: When you on TV, did you actually see furniture being thrown around?
3: No, they didn't. They didn't show anything like that. It was mostly, uh, as I as I can remember, and I don't like to go by my ten year old memory. But I remember uh, people talking outside the house uh, is the only memory I have of it. And I can't tell you if that's a completely accurate memory, but from all my research, I can tell you that, um, you know, there were some interviews inside and outside of the house, but uh, nothing was caught on camera. There actually were reporters in the house that had cameras, but uh, uh, more or less were kind of, it happened too fast, or they were more or less caught in the moment. It was difficult to remain outside of the story when they ended up finding out that they were part of it, you know, in the middle of it.
0: Wow,
2: how well, long I, I did this really
0: they... last? Oops, I'm sorry. Go ahead, answer it. I was going to say, how long did this period last? When this was going forward, was it a half a day, a day, or, or you know, um... weeks? <laughs> yeah. How long? Yeah.
3: Well, the uh, the. The overall, from the very start of any phenomena to the end, it would be from 1968 to 1975. But if we look at the ultimate height of the activity occurred uh, over the weekend in November 1974, uh, Friday night uh, to about Tuesday morning was really the, uh, the real heavy periods. And that was during the period where, it uh, leaked out to the public and soon the media and then, you know, the world from there uh, was because the police were there on uh, on uh, Sunday. And that's uh, Sunday and Monday were the two big days that uh, uh, gather the crowds and uh, the dogs and paddy wagons and police protection and traffic stopping and all the rest of it as the story hit the AP wire and traveled, you know, around the world.
2: I bet I bet the family uh, I felt sorry for the family because I'm sure they got criticism from the outside.
3: Oh, it was brutal, absolutely uh brutal. Um at work for uh, Jerry the father and he was a maintenance man at uh, Harvey Hubble factory in, in Bridgeport, uh at the time. Uh so there was ridicule uh from people and uh you know, both you know, just regular people And there was a lot of uh, criticism, you know, at uh, work. Uh, People really made fun of them to no end at work. And uh, then people would vandalize their car and, uh, you know, pull clothes off the clothesline and, you know, throw rocks at the house and just all that kind of horrible things that people do. And other people were very supportive, you know, maintaining a vigil outside the house. Some people prayed. Uh, the neighbors were extremely supportive uh, because they heard the screams and, yeah, and they knew it was a real situation. And some of them knew other people on the same street that were having problems, uh, kind of like an overflow, you know, from the house. Oh. Uh, so uh, so they would bring over big goods and, and uh, things to help the family out like you would uh, do in the time of need, you know, whether it's a funeral or, you know, whatever the – uh, the situation was. Um but because uh, you know a lot of those people of course knew knew them and they knew that uh this was not fake. They knew that they were suffering because they knew the family before all of this. So
2: Well some people blamed the... Uh, they had an adopted daughter and uh some people blamed the adopted daughter for being the uh, the creator yes. of all of
3: this. Yeah, and that was the uh <clears throat> It, that was the uh, the hoax uh, story, uh, the story uh, to get rid of the crowds. And it was also the very first thing that you would suspect in a case like this. Uh, there are uh, cases where um, something like this will happen and an outsider will come and very quickly see through it, you know, because a child can fool their parents. But, you know, when an outsider comes in, it's usually pretty easy to notice that, Things are only happening when the child's around and things like that. Uh, And uh, police will, you know, when they show up, they'll naturally uh, immediately suspect the child. And, you know, and that happened at this case, too, until, uh, you know, the officers really saw phenomena for themselves. You know, when a 300-pound refrigerator floats, uh, you know, you can't blame it on the child anymore or when there's phenomena happening in every room, you know, so... Uh, so there was no question it wasn't her, but to the public, it's a very easy sell. You know, our attention span is like that of a gnat. So, you know, <laughs> you know if uh, if police officers are, and firefighters and priests and they're all being interviewed in the newspaper saying about all the, these things that happened, um, you know, two days later you can easily just say, oh, no, it was the girl, and, you know, everybody goes home, and that's exactly what happened. I mean, uh, you know, look at Roswell, same kind of thing, right? Uh, something out of this yeah. world No, it's not It's just, just a plastic weather balloon you know a major couldn't tell the difference you know we'll fly it in a special plane even though it's just a pile of junk we'll put it in this nice special plane and fly it off you know and the public says okay and, and everybody moves on it's just it's just really kind of funny but you know that's the way these things are you don't really need to prove uh, a hoax story um and, you know, in the police department's defense, uh, this thing just kept getting bigger and bigger. You know, the longer this thing was going on without uh, an explanation, uh, the more people were arriving and from farther away. So, you know, it was really a hazardous situation, and, and the police knew it, and uh, the superintendent wanted his city back. It was tying up uh, police resources, uh I mean, three guys even trying to burn the house down while the family was inside. So, oh my God. You know, the, yeah, I mean, this was, you know, I mean, what other, uh, what other way to get rid of evil spirits than to burn humans inside a house, you know? <laughs> but, you know, that's, so, you know, the way crowds are, is just crazy. You know, the traffic and, you know, and that, that of course, increases the amount of accidents you're going to have. I mean, this thing was just a, a real crazy scene, and it wasn't making the superintendent look good. He wanted his city back. Um, he knew that there was no explanation, but what are you going to do, tell people there's no explanation and just have the crowds get more out of control? Um because even with barricades and dogs and paddywhack and, and things like that, it's still, uh, you know, a nightmare for the police department. So uh, when they saw Marcy, uh, two guys had never been in the house before on Tuesday morning, saw Marcy, um, you know, kick a TV. And that was the start of, oh, look, I saw you kick a TV. And, you know, you must have made the cat talk, which was another, uh, you know, phenomenon that was going on. The cat didn't talk, but it was, there was audio phenomena and Marcy used to pretend to uh, make her little kitten talk. But, you know, she was very lonely and shy and everything. And she used to say that was her only friend and, you know, it didn't fool anybody, but because she did that, when they asked her, she said, Oh yeah, I make Sam talk. And, you know, and then of course everything got blamed on her, uh, you know, things she couldn't have possibly done. Uh, a lot of phenomena happened when she wasn't even in the house, but again, nobody's really looking at details and, uh, uh, you know, somebody asked me, "Well, didn't the inspector, you know, look into the details?" I was like, "Well, no, he didn't have to. He had the details. <laughs> you know, he, he wasn't trying to figure out whether it was a hoax or not. He knew it wasn't a hoax. You know, this this was necessary to get rid of the crowds, and that's been well uh, proven by the witnesses involved, including the captain. I mean, they all knew it, and and they all said it behind the scenes that uh, you know we did the best we could with what was presented to us. We had to." shut this thing down for the family's uh, sake, too, although Jerry said he really wished they blamed him and not uh, poor Marcy, you know.
2: Yeah, well, I read I read somewhere that she was adopted out from a large family, and that, that yeah. made people uh, kind of question why did the other family want to adopt her out? I mean, that was one of the questions up in the air. <clears throat>
3: Yeah, and unfortunately, we don't know too much about that family. And, you know, so some people hypothesize did, you know, was the poltergeist originally, you know, with that family? Were they scared of her? You know, or was it just too much to handle? It was said they tied her to a chair we don't know the context of that we know it's not good but is it cuz there's too many children or was it abuse or you know we just really don't have a lot of uh, information on that especially with the way adoptions were back then so unfortunately uh that remains a you know one of the things on the possibility list but uh we do know that the uh, activity although very very small started uh af- shortly after Marcy was adopted so I don't think Marcy caused it, but we do know that uh, she was obviously, no matter what theory anybody has on what a poltergeist is, everybody agrees Marcy was at the center of it anyhow. Is she
2: wow. still alive, you know?
3: Um, that'll leave for the book because I haven't gotten in trouble for uh, <laughs> for giving that. Some people say I gave it away. It's a spoiler you know, alert, but we oh. do... Uh, we do trace that uh, in 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 the book for you. Um, that's probably the only question I won't answer.
2: <laughs> okay. <laughs> you, okay, you wouldn't if believe the
3: backlash over you know the spoil, spoiler spoiler <laughs> alert, but you know.
0: Was this strictly a poltergeist only, or were there other kinds of forms of entities involved?
3: Well, you know, and that's and that's really the the question of how you know, we define a poltergeist. So for those who uh, believe it's just psychokinesis, uh, I would say that's not the case. But I, I don't really believe that, you know, poltergeist is psychokinesis. I mean, I could be wrong. Again, these are all theories. And I say this all the time that, you know, I don't want to fight anybody on their theory because I'm happy that we're just discussing it. You know, I think us people who look into these things <laughs> need to stick together. But, <laughs> um, but well, no, I do because you know some people get into these big fights over you know no it's a demon no it's an entity no it's psychokinesis no it you know you're wrong you're stupid you know it's like well it's unknown and I think I, I think we need to kind of you know even if you believe something completely different I think this is the area of all that we should be happy that we're at least acknowledging it and, you know, looking for answers. Um, but it, with with this, it, it definitely, I mean, to me, when you look at the indicators of these, what I would call parasites or entities, um, they definitely feed on some sort of trouble, you know, that negative energy. And, and Marcy was the lonely, introverted, um, kept to herself, uh, was was now in a strange land and picked on at school and then finally got beat up at school and was home from school with her overbearing parents because they had a smaller child who died when he was 6 the cerebral palsy couldn't walk or talk so they were they had this unhealthy parenting style with Marcy kind of treating her like they did Jerry junior their you know their little boy who died and they were afraid Marcy was going to die so he yeah. was all you know, it was all of that, and now she's stuck at home for six weeks with the uh, with the overbearing mother, who's you know you can't go across the street, you'll get killed, kind of you know philosophy, and so this did all peak uh, the activity, uh, but there were entities involved. So, in in my mind, um, I wouldn't think that you know a psychokinesis would not only have entities, but the, usually if one thinks to look that there are other houses that are affected. It's never just you know one house. Well, I don't want to say never. I should never say never. Uh, and there's different kinds of hauntings, obviously. But uh, in a case like this, it looks like when the door opens, you know, whatever door you believe, whether it's dimensional, whether it's hell, whether it's a multi-universe, which I prefer the quantum physics kind of explanation, but, you know, jury's out on all of that. But whatever opens uh, tends to bring through just more than one species or type or whatever, and you find that there's other houses that are impacted also uh, by different entities in in different ways, and we found that on on Lindley Street also. So um, I do think uh, that's one of the common indicators. The other thing is we usually find a lake or a stream nearby. In this case, there was an underwater uh, spring uh, under the house. And then, um, uh, you know, Bridgeport was known for, you know, the sandy soils and high water tables, which seems to be another commonality. Um, although, you know, this this would fall into basically anybody's theory. They're just kind of, you know, things that coincide. But So I don't think uh, it was Marcy's kind of unconscious frustration. I do think that there definitely is some sort of negative relationship, you know, between the entities and... And, uh, Marcy, that they feed off that, that they appear like they know how to push buttons. Um, I, I hesitate to call them evil though, because I don't think we know enough. You know, we're, we're, uh, we're good at, uh, we're, we're very guilty of giving human motivations to things that are not necessarily human. And I'm guilty of it too. I, you know, if I mow the lawn and gnats attack me, I think I disrupted their home and they're attacking me to save their home, you know, cause that's, that's a human motivation. It doesn't occur to me that that's not why they're that's not why they're coming after me. They're coming after me because they're attracted, yeah, mm-hmm. and not because it's minty fresh, but because of the chemicals I release. <laughs> but um, you know, so we apply a lot of human motivations to these things. But uh, I don't like to call them evil because I, I don't know. I mean, the people outside that tried to burn down the house were they evil? I I don't think so. They were stupid. They were scared. But I wouldn't yeah, call I was them scared. scared. You know, yeah, I wouldn't call them evil because you
0: know, you
3: know, these things may not have asked to be here, or they may have. They may. I'm not saying that they're positive and they're lovely, and you know, no, there are definitely some very negative things that they do. Uh, But I I wouldn't label them evil because you know, maybe neutral, maybe negative. Uh, We're seeing the worst side of them, but we really don't know. I think enough. And we do know that there's good things that come through also some would call them angels, some would just call them you know good spirits, or you know whatever we name them uh to mm-hmm. me, you know, I'd rather name them based on behavior rather than specifically labeling exactly this is Fred or you know because it's tough to get to that level of preciseness and knowing exactly what these things are but um you know these well, they were just
0: they were just lifting up things and moving things so to them, I mean, it—it it was just, you know, I mean, probably an easy trick. <laughs> Who knows, you know? Yeah, well,
3: you know, and some of that, um, some of it, I think, you know, some of it was definitely them because it was very intentional. You know, so if an entity picks up and throws Marcy across the room, that's like you would—we we don't even know, but we would assume that that's a negative and an intentional act. You know, right? Uh, did, and they it's actually, did they
2: actually? Did they actually pick her up and throw her across the room? Yes.
3: Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. poor thing. Yeah. Now, yeah. Yeah, so, yeah.
2: Well, but, no wonder know, the neighbors like,
0: got scared. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, who wants that to come into their home, too? I mean, it's kind of like, wow.
3: Well, see, that's a good point. That's why I, I try to think broader that I know. I try to always ask myself, okay, let's assume you know less and it's not what you think. What could it be? And, you know, the refrigerator floating, I don't think an entity did that. I think that's an energy reaction, you know, from the upset and the electromagnetic fields, you know. Um, I I don't think that that's something that somebody specifically did. I think that's, and, you know, Paulino, I will steal this from him, but he gives a great example. Uh, if you have a pile of papers on a desk, and you run by the desk, you've upset the papers, but it wasn't an intentional act. It was by the energy let off by you, you know, running close to the papers. You know, you blew them up, and they, you know, they blow all over the place. And I think a lot of the things that we see uh, in these cases are not intentional, and other things are intentional. But the fridge floating, I, I I would venture to say that that was not, like an intentional thing that that was um part of the energies of the two worlds or dimensions or like i said you know use whatever word uh makes you happy uh intersecting or you know or having been opened or like i said you know use whatever term um you know you prefer but to me uh i don't you know as one of the as one of the newspaper reporters uh told me Uh, He said, I don't believe it's a demon that moved a a toy boat four inches to the left. And, I mean, in that case, I would say the movement of that particular object was not an intentional act. I think that was caused by this uh, mix of energies, Uh, whereas other things, like I said, an entity you know, a pairing or an entity, you know, picking up uh, the girl or flipping the chair while she's in it. That may be, you know, those are more kind of intentional things, things that are directed specifically towards uh, people. Uh, Another example was a Christmas tree. The ornaments, they came home uh, one day, the Christmas tree ornaments were underneath the tree in a neat little pile. So that's freaky, you know. (laughs) That would be, you know, more... You know, intentional, you know what I mean?
2: Did they bring in a minister or a priest? Um.
3: Um, what happened was, uh, you know, the, the escalation of this was uh, the off duty police officer from across the street who's a friend and a neighbor came first. He didn't know what to do, so he called for backup. More police came. Uh, they saw things and they didn't know what to do, so they called the fire department. They came. Everything with the house is fine. So they didn't know what to do. So a uh, fireman calls up the department chaplain and, you know, he says, hey, Father, I'm not drunk, but this is what's going on here. <laughs> and uh, and they go to get him. And uh, that was Father Doyle, for those that are local that may know him. And um, he, uh, he came and said there's, you know, evil presence here and he had trouble breathing and uh He tried to make a cheer go back, but uh Marcy was flying back in several times uh, very very quickly in fact, while uh the police officers were actually talking to her, this happened, so there was just a you know a house full of witnesses but um so he was going to try to get uh, an exorcism done um, and uh, you know that never happened of course then. Later on, even that day, the crowd started forming and words started getting out. And once this thing got massive, uh, you know, that was over. Um, and then a neighbor knew Ed and Lorraine Warren uh, because she saw them speak. And she called them up and they came with Father Charbonneau, who they had worked with. Um, and And he's an amazing man for a few reasons, and one of which... Not just because he's intelligent and a nice guy and everything, which is he's, which is wonderful enough. But nobody can understand how he got away with uh, doing paranormal investigation as a priest, being so vocal about it. He would tell any newspaper who would listen exactly what happened in that house and why it's real. So, <laughs> and and we just couldn't understand how he got everybody. When anybody I interviewed would say, Oh, yeah, Father Charbonneau. Yeah, we never could figure out how he, he can get away with that.
0: Well, he must have been so shocked, though, that it's, I mean, to view this kind of activity. I mean, no one has seen this kind of stuff, you know? It's not in our normal
2: day. Right. Uh, had, had he investigated other houses that were similar?
3: Uh, Father Charbonneau, uh, I don't know about poltergeist cases, but other paranormal uh, phenomena, yes. Uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren had worked with him, uh, you know, on some cases. Um, But, yeah, nobody really could figure out how he was, like I say, he would be in all the newspapers at the time uh, saying what happened. Whereas Father Doyle, he towed the party line saying we can't assume anything. But behind the scenes, he did continue to help the family and, uh, you know, console them and things like that, which was, uh, you know, so he knew it was real. And uh, and uh, it's funny because all the witnesses would mention his name and Father Doyle said this, Father Doyle said that. Meanwhile, if you just read the newspapers, it would give you the impression that Father Doyle was over once and never saw him again. <laughs> but he was very uh, instrumental in, uh, you know, bringing the family some uh, peace during that hectic time.
2: Wow, well, you know, during the 70s, there weren't too many paranormal investigators, as as many as there are now. But did any paranormal investigators come in and check it all out and try to help them?
3: Uh, there were, uh, besides uh, the Warrens, um, who also brought Paulino, who ended up investigating the paranormal for some 40 years now. But at that time, this was his first major run-in with um Uh, you know, with these entities. um, And he was a 21-year-old seminary student at the time. But there were a few other people who uh, showed up and they were were told, you know, we're all set. Uh, You know, the family wasn't going to let everybody in. You know, they did end up letting the Warrens in because uh, their friends knew who they were. They didn't, the the Goodens didn't know uh, who the Warrens were. Uh, But, you know, everybody else had been at the house and they figured why not um and because their friends knew them then they said, "Alright, well, you know, let's let them in and see what they they can't do any worse than the police and the firemen and everybody else."
0: Yeah, did but any psychics show up on this case? Um
3: I I think I think there was uh somebody who tried to get in but they weren't let in. So there were a few people that uh you know, were there, showed up or offered help, but uh you know, they were told that we're all set. And they, because they had the warrens there, Father Charbonneau and uh, Paulino. So, um, you know, they had they had four people in the house helping at that point. And, uh, um, you know, the uh, Jerry's brothers uh, a lot of times was outside the house and would turn people away. So, but I do know uh, I forget the names, but there was a few people that contacted me that said, "Yeah, we were there. We tried to help, but we were told that they were." You know, they were all sad. They had enough people, you know, in the house.
2: Well, did they um, end up moving because of all of this? Um, they
3: had, they wanted to sell, they tried to sell the house and were unable to, um, even though the phenomena had stopped. Um, what happened when Marcy ended up getting uh, settled back, because uh, she wasn't going to go back to the public school, the family, of course, wasn't going to send her back to the, same environment where she was beat up, Um, so Father Doyle helped them get a scholarship to get her into uh, St. Patrick's School, Um, and so once she got into school and was back into a routine and, uh, you know, the family was uh, much more at peace, uh, it dissipated. And so the phenomenon was gone, but they still wanted out because, uh, as Jerry said, you know we can't live here. I can't work in this town. We don't want Marcy to have to grow up with the stigma. So they really wanted to get out of town, but they couldn't sell the house. Probably for uh, probably two main reasons. Probably didn't. It might have had something to do with the activity, but I think uh, the bigger reasons were it was a really tiny house. I mean, it was 738 square feet. This was a, a tiny little bungalow. Uh, it was actually only three rooms, and Jerry made a bedroom out of a, out of the closet and the master bedroom for Marcy. So this was a really tiny house. And, and then the other thing is they wanted uh, $31,000 for it because of the loans and things that they had on the house. So with those two factors together, uh, it was uh, tough to sell the house. And then, of course, you add on to that you know, the other stuff that happened there, you know, today, that probably would help sell it, but uh, I'm not sure what it did then. But even without that, it it would have been a tough house to sell, I think. And so because they couldn't sell it and because the phenomena had uh, stopped by then, uh, they decided to paint the house and get rid of these swan planners that were on the porch that uh, uh, they would move by themselves. So they were pretty infamous on their own. So they got rid of those, painted the house Trying to kind of hide where the house is, so you know the gawkers wouldn't come by anymore uh but instead it ended up in the paper, you know new look on Lindley Street, so that idea <laughs> so <laughs>
2: so I, I some one of the reviews said that uh that I read uh, on your book uh the lady said the only thing that didn't move in the house was the uh picture of the Last Supper. And she thought that
3: was
2: something in it. Yeah,
3: there was. uh, I mean, there were other things that didn't move in the house, and I think I think this comes to uh, a lot of our assumptions too. You know that we see things through, of course, our beliefs and our own prejudices. And I'll give you an example in the case. uh, If you ask some of the witnesses, you know what items move the most. Uh, they probably would, and a few did say uh, religious items. However, if you look at the data, if you actually look at the incident data that uh, the investigators put together, which you know, Boyce Beatty and his team from Duke University did an amazing job, uh, it's very rare to have this many witnesses and this kind of documentation <clears throat> because they got there right away. But um, it, 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 you know, at the incidents themselves. Religious items were only impacted 10% of the time. Uh, 90% of the time, it was non-religious objects. So, but to the witnesses, um, they would remember and recall and remark about religious items. And I think the reason is it, it's a little more jarring to see, you know, a cross float down or or shatter or something like that happen versus seeing a kitchen table lift up and flip. You know, there's kind of a different. Uh, connotation to it. You know, it's a little more jarring yeah. and you know.
0: Yeah, definitely. How did you how did you go about um bringing the people together so that you could interview with them? How did you connect with these people?
3: Uh most of it was uh by phone and social media was uh incredibly useful because everybody kind of um I don't say everybody, but so many people just came forward and said, "Oh, you know, you need to talk to this person, or I know where this person is. You know, I, I can contact them for you." Or did you, did you talk to John yet? Because he was, you know, in the crowd. You know, and everybody, uh, it was kind of like six degrees of Linley Street. You know, everybody had uh, a piece to it, and so that definitely helped. Uh, locate people, locate additional people that, you know, newspapers never mentioned. And, you know, there was just, of course, so many people uh, involved in this, uh, additional police officers and and things like that. So um, that really opened up um, the investigation and made it just a lot easier for me because uh, I was able to concentrate more and more on interviewing um, because there was a lot of time, of course, spent, just trying to get out and and find and reach people. Uh, But then it kind of got legs of its own where people were coming to me and uh, helping me locate people, some of which I knew, some of which I didn't. And it really started to have legs and uh, connect. The other thing is, of course, uh, from the very beginning, uh, once I found uh, Boyce Baby's name in the newspaper and uh, I ended up getting in touch with him, and asking, you know, I heard that there was this big investigation uh do you you know do you have access to it and he says i you know I think so. It's in a box in my basement so <laughs> so so he had thirty hours of interviews that he gave me, and all the paperwork on it wow. so yeah, so that was about half of you know the investigation and then what I did is I reconnected with uh, any of those people who were still with us. Yeah. Um, that I could lo- locate is along with doing another 10 15 hours of interviews on my own with you know additional witnesses um, some of which had some uh really new and expansive information and others that just had you know uh, just a little bit of detail that uh, enabled me to go back and add a little more texture to the story by uh putting in a a detail or two that you know wasn't major but Kind of made the scene come alive, you know.
0: I can imagine receiving this big box of goodies, going, "Holy smokes!" <laughs> oh,
3: oh, I'll tell you, it was it was very exciting. <laughs> like Christmas, and,
0: it was. Oh Christmas.
3: yeah, I mean, <laughs> <was> Christmas time. <laughs> yeah, he invited me. Uh, he invited me over to his house, and uh, he gave me a slideshow, and and uh, he gave me a report he did, which now uh, is in the book, but. Uh, he did a preliminary report, and was, he got the newspaper and sat down. He said, "Here's a report. Read through it. It's my synopsis, and then we'll talk." And so I read it. He read the newspaper, and then we got together and I asked him a million questions, and then we tested the tapes because you know they haven't been played in 40 years. And he gave me it all to me, and um, and, and it was just really great to be able to put this work together and have him look at me and said, I can't believe how much you got of this story because he says, you know more about this than I ever uncovered at the time. And I said, oh my god, boy! you know, boys, I mean, you interviewed so many, so many people were interviewed and stuff. I couldn't have did it without him. It would, it would have been, you know, well, for one thing, most of those people aren't with us, but um, it, it would have just been... It was a monster project as it is, but it would have been just uh, unbelievable without, uh, you know, the 30-hour head start. I mean, there was a reel-to-reel of eight hours of uh, police officer interviews that took place at the police station in a special conference room that was set up. I mean, the police mandated that their people be interviewed. So, I mean, they knew it wasn't a hoax. They actually actively and enthusiastically participated in the investigation and mandated that the police officers uh, go in and be interviewed.
2: Well, out of all the interviews, was there anything that was particularly like stunned you or shocked you more than um, most of the interviews? I mean, did, there was one thing that stood out more than any other thing.
3: Yes. Uh, yeah, a few things, and and they were, th- and, and you know, I was glad I contacted. I almost wasn't going to be as diligent in contacting people who were already interviewed back in 1974 or, or 1975, but I'm glad I did because some of them did not tell everything. Uh, there were things that they withheld because, um, you know, ridicule or like in a police officer's case, his career. Uh, even though there were private interviews that, you know, they were told this wasn't going to get out to anybody, you know you still feel a little funny about it, and yeah. one of them yeah. yeah, I mean one of them was uh Paul Eno, who was twenty one at the time, when he had Marcy in back of him and he and he there was these four entities in in okay. front of him, they described him like gauzy like figures and and mm-hmm. one of them was trying to get around Paul, and he put his hand out and he felt. That the thing had substance, that it wasn't. like, wow. Yeah, and that's one of them. It, 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 he described it as he said, you know, I'm not a biologist, but um, <laughs> act, actually, I'm going to play you his words. How's that? That would be. Oh, so that's fun. good. That would be fun. much yeah. cooler. Yeah, it's very short, but I'm going to play you his words. i got a few snippets here. Here we go. I didn't
0: know how people would take it. These things are supposed to be spirits, but they believe they were demons. But does he even
3: have anatomy and bone structures? Like I'm not biologist I mean I I the biology I could really identify it was not a bone like the things out of my you know treating the kid across the world. So let's Paul describing he said it felt like this bony bird like kind of structure. And he hadn't talked about it for thirty five years. Um he was afraid what people would think. And he said he dare not tell Ed and Lorraine Warren because these things were supposed to be demons. And, and you know, he was 21 years old. He said he wasn't going to tell them what he felt. You know, they would have thought he was crazy.
0: Yeah, another 21 years of exile. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, my so the,
2: God. So the, War- the Warrens came in to help. Did they suggest anything or... Um how the family do anything special to rid themselves?
3: Uh, their, their, big rec- their big uh, recommendation was uh, if something happens in one room, uh, get up and leave the room go in a different room. And uh, that and leave everything where it is um, because they wanted to, you know, record it. And, uh, the Warrens were there, <coughs> excuse me, with... Uh, Falling on Father Charbonneau for on and off, but mostly on for a lot of hours during the two two days of intense activity. Uh, but once the hoax story was um, given to the public, they weren't allowed back. So um, everybody kind of got kicked off the case, if you will. So the phenomena continued, um, um, but uh, there was. No the next people that came in to help were um was uh, Boyce Beatty and and the two guys from Duke University, Jerry Sultan and Keith Harari, uh, Bill Rowe, who you may know, you know, probably the poltergeist guy at least at the time. Uh he was in England at the time, so um Keith and Jerry came. So the three of them were the next people to uh come in and help the family. Um Father Charbonneau did provide um more support later on and Father Doyle uh continued to supply uh, su- not supply uh <laughs> continued to uh help them and uh you know be a source of comfort and and guidance uh, through it. But so it kind of had uh, multiple phases if you will. Uh, that's what's interesting about this. Nobody really has the whole story. I mean, the Warrens have a piece of the story, but there was a lot that happened before and afterwards. And, th- and that was the same with basically everybody. So it was very satisfying to be able to gain new information from a witness and also be able to answer their questions that have lingered for 40 years of how their piece fit into the whole. You know, like Officer Joe Tomick was interviewed and was forced to be interviewed at the police department, but he didn't know why and by whom. So I was able to answer that for him while he was able to share insights and details that uh, he didn't share back in 74 um, and expand upon it. And actually he helped edit the chapter of what happened when he was there in the house. So, I mean, to have that kind of involvement from, such credible witnesses was uh, really great because, uh, you know, it was like a soap opera. People don't know you're writing a book, so, you you know, you've got to get, you get a timeline together because they're jumping days and everything, so you have to make sure, uh, you know, everything is there and, uh, you know, Um but yeah, you know. So if you ever anybody ever interviews you about paranormal phenomena, assume they're writing a book and give lots of details. <laughs> <laughs> had,
2: how, long did, how, long, how long did this take you to oh, from the beginning probably, to the end?
3: It, it took me probably about eight nine months. It would have taken longer, but you know I had a deadline. But what really helped was I kind of ran on two tracks with it with the initial interviews. Once I had a timeline done, I began writing it. But I kept interviewing while I was writing. So, um, you know, there was the writing piece, and then they continued. I mean, I was interviewing right up until, you know, I submitted the manuscript. And sometimes I'd find out one little extra detail. Oh, they threw garlic at the house. Oh, that's neat. All right, let me go back and, you know, add that into the, you know, the crowd area. If, if if there was something specific or new or new detail that came in, I would go back and, uh, you know, rewrite or add on as as needed. Uh, but I kept interviewing, you know, because people would, would uh, be found or other people would say, hey, did you know this person uh, did this or, you know, that kind of thing. And so as you come across new people, you don't want to not interview them. You want to make, you know, you're always... Of course, with this kind of thing, you're always afraid somebody's going to come forth with new information after you hand the thing in. But
0: um, well, even I, the I, whole town, even the whole town has something fresh and new that they might not have heard. <laughs> this book right. is open. You know, it's beautiful. Um, let me ask you a question. There, in chapter ten, you say an extraordinary game of checkers. What was that? I didn't get to uh, find out.
3: Oh, um, well, a police officer is uh, there uh, inside the house, and, and this is after it was declared a hoax. I mean, which is another kind of uh, neat part to the case is you know they announced it a hoax, but the police department is still providing uh, protection to the family uh not just outside crowd control but inside the house so you know that was uh that was interesting but um so there was a police officer inside the house at the time and and uh Marcy wanted to play checkers and uh they played checkers and she lost and she uh accused the officer she said oh i think he cheated and and she you know she went uh, to her room Three things um, fell over at once. Bure fell, and 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 all of this happened uh, while she was in full view with the you know the checker box, uh, you know, in her hands. And um, so that you know, and of course that people would say was you you know that's psychokinetic or whatever, but I don't know. We know there definitely is a relationship between. Whoever was there in Marcy, and we know that Marcy was the center of it, but um, yeah, that was an interesting uh, bit of phenomena that the, the police officer saw. And they actually, after that, the, the family actually ended up leaving the house um, that day because of the phenomena that happened. They asked the police officer, What should we do? and stuff. And he said, You may want to go stay with family now, too. So they all left.
0: Yeah. Um, oh, my God. How long did they sleep after going through some of these stories and writing about them? Did they kind of tickle your brain when you're trying to rest?
3: um, No, not in a bad way. Um, Definitely uh, a fascination, you know, an ongoing fascination and questioning and wanting to know more. And and of course that's how it did expand (laughs) into a book, you know, to know more. But it was it was quite fascinating um uh did
2: you interview anybody that was scared of the whole thing i mean like a neighbor or somebody who was frightened and they were one of the people that threw the garlic or did you interview anyone <clears throat> like that
3: um no nobody identified uh, I wasn't able to identify a particular person who did an act like that, if that's what you mean. But what was amazing is uh, some of the uh, lectures that I I did, uh, and, you know, one of them in uh, Milford, which is close to Bridgeport, Connecticut, but I'm amazed at how many witnesses show up or children of witnesses. You know, one lady showed up and said, uh, yeah, I live two houses down, and I heard the screams. And another lady said, my dad was, you know, Firemen there, and um, you know, just everybody had a, a story or you know a relation in some way to it. That you know, a lot of people that grew up in uh, Bridgeport, they just they really never knew what happened, but it impacted just so many people because it was so public. It just uh, you know these these things normally don't get that public. Some of them get. You know, public to degree, but this was crazy with over two thousand people outside the house. So it oh, really, yeah, yeah it yeah. really en- ended up getting uh, a lot of people that were connected to it somehow. And of course, when you have, uh, you know, sixteen or more police officers involved, uh, even the police officers who weren't directly there seeing things, I mean, they have their they have friends. And the officers have friends. And, you know, so when you add in all of these, you know, over 100 witnesses and everybody they know, you know, the thing just really, uh, its it's got a lot of legs to it. And there's just a lot of uh, stories and experiences with people. Uh, you know, I even interviewed a guy who dated uh, the superintendent's daughter. You know, so you had all sorts of connections that you interview, what was going on behind the scenes, what the children heard at, at home, you know, when their dad got home from uh, dealing with uh, this case and racking their brain on trying to, you know, close the case and get the people to go home, and you know, so you had family uh, involvement and you know their perspective too. So,
2: how large is that town? It doesn't sound very big. How long? How large is it?
3: Uh, Bridgeport. Uh-huh. It's, uh huh. Oh, it's it's a pretty decent sized city. It's it's oh, not, okay. I mean, oh. the, the house is tiny, but it, it was like uh, two blocks from uh, uh, the hospital. So it was right in the middle of uh, the city. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'd have to Google to find out exactly how much because I'm bad with that, but it's not, you know, a tiny little area, you know. Oh, okay. um, yeah, that was right downtown in a kind of a, a lower-income part of Bridgeport Um but uh, yeah, how oh, well the two thousand people outside is not a good—that's not a good chance because people, of course, were coming started coming from all over, so it's hard to really. Yeah, die. really. But, yeah.
0: Uh, <laughs> well, you know what the story is in the house at night when after people look at that—that's all they could talk about, probably. <laughs> oh My yeah. Gosh. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, Bill, let us give out your website. Uh, we're getting toward the end here, and the it's the name of your book world's most haunted house dot com um at, and th- that's your website uh is there anything else that we haven't touched upon that you would like to share with us
3: um well, I'd like to say at worldsmosthauntedhouse.com uh, world's most haunted house dot com there are some uh free things that you can get, so uh check it out hopefully you you know you'll like the site and um also, it has an event calendar of uh, other uh, great interviews. Probably not as good as this one, of course, but you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> with such lovely interviewers. But there are others, and uh, and where I'm going to be for those that are uh, local or somewhat local. And um, I, you know, there's just so much uh, to this case. But I, I would say I'd like to sum it up that if you if you have an open mind or or you know even if you already believe in all of this if there's somebody that you really if you want to take a book and say you know I want one book that's going to give me the proof that I need this I be, I'm not trying to be you know conceited when I say it but I believe this case is the one that that would do it i mean it's the one that did it for me unless of course you know 100 witnesses is not worth it obviously if you don't Care what any witnesses say or police reports say or any anything like that. That of course, you know, we all know uh, for some things nothing is going to convince you. But I think this is a a case that is a, a great one to share with people who are open-minded but very skeptical uh, because uh, you know I'm 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 that way too. You know, and you should be. Uh, but yeah. uh, obviously, if you have know you been somebody, have you any movie right? Do you, you, you have an offer? Yeah. No. <laughs> no, I was uh, thinking it's love... an
2: excellent movie. Yeah, I would.
3: <laughs> yeah. I, would I really would. Uh, would love that, and so would my creditors. But uh, uh, no, <laughs> but no, I, I really would, and it would be nice if they did it uh, in an accurate manner. Too would be uh, would be very pleasant. I think it's a it's a great enough uh, story with plenty of phenomena that you really don't have to. Um, you don't have to do an Amityville on it, in other words, you
0: know. Bump it up. <laughs> this is really, you know, uh, one guy says if you want to sleep, make sure you don't read this story before you go to bed.
3: <laughs> yeah, Dr. Andrew Nichols said that. And, uh, he... <laughs> oh, my
0: God. Oh my God. Yeah, well, although well, I, have...
3: I still, I was just going to say when well, it came out, I was, I was telling her, but I knew it wasn't scary, but then I got in trouble, so I stopped saying anything. I said, I don't know. You read it yourself.
2: <laughs> well, we want everybody to know if, who want, if they want to go out, I mean, go on to Amazon.com uh, to buy the book. That The author's name, Bill's name, is William J. Hall. So it might be easier to find it, because we've been calling you Bill for the hour, so people should look under William J. Hall.
0: Yes. Yeah. And the name of the book is, um, is Uh, let's see, oh my God, The World's Most Haunted House, The True Story of the Bridgeport Poltergeist on Lindley Street. And um, this is like, it's an honor having you with us today, Bill. Um, Um, Thank you for sharing your time with us and wrapping up one of the scariest times for many um, into a book. And um you know, and it's true. I mean it's it's like we people really live this story and um like I say, Halloween is not one of my favorite times.
2: <laughs> it's here. my favorite. It's my favorite time, so I know it's Paula's favorite.
3: <laughs> well, that's why you two work good together. See, you got you got both sides covered. <laughs>
0: oh,
3: thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you, Bill. Have a blessed day. It was a
3: great interview. Bye-bye.
0: Bye.